Hope you like my fire and brimstone slide there. Um, we are going to get to talk, of, uh, talk through this passage this morning where Peter is going to talk about the eventual destruction of this world and this universe. So as I was contemplating the passage that we were studying this morning, I was struck by how humanity both now and throughout history is consumed with knowing and preparing for the future. This comes at us, of course, in many different ways, and many of these are appropriate. You know, we tell our children to think about and to plan for the future. We understand that the decisions that we make today have implications for our future. Doctors warn us constantly against the future dangers of eating junk food or sedentary lifestyles or tobacco use or vaping, drug use, and so on. Fad diets and, and other habits that people have. Of course, when it comes to investments, uh, there are so many people out there that are making predictions about what's going to happen in the future, what might happen next week or next year and so on. And there is a word that we ascribe to those in the investment community who have been able to accurately predict the future and act on that understanding. And of course, that word is wealthy. They're rich. Um, of course, there are many things that we want to know about the future. Some of them are short-term, some of them are long-term, but they're questions like, who's going to be the next president? What political party is going to rise to power? What's going to happen to our country? Who's going to win the next college football championship? Who will receive the Heisman Trophy? What cryptocurrency is going to rise and emerge at the top? What's going to happen to the US dollar? What will the price of gold and silver be next year? What new and up-and-coming stocks should I buy? What college should I attend? What uh, person should I date if I'm looking? And so on. And there's many of these kinds of questions, and there will always be these kinds of questions. And throughout history, people have sought to know and understand the future in different ways. Well, some of those key mechanisms, it's helpful to think about. These are ways that people go about trying to learn and know the future. Some are utterly sinful and demonic. Things like astrology, consulting mediums, false religions and false religious practices, psychic readings, and I would even add in there modern prophecy, even though it may be coming from a church setting, a word from the Lord, we know that that is not true revelation, and in fact, li likely it's coming from false teachers and people who are deceived. There are also some mechanisms that people seek to use to know the future that aren't necessarily sinful per se, but are completely ridiculous and unhelpful. Things like interpreting dreams, premonitions, studying Nostradamus, utter waste of time that is, listening to the sm still small voice we could add in there, uh, the burning in the bosom, irrational superstitions like believing that the level on which you parked your car in the parking garage has a direct, a direct correlation to whether or not you win in the casino. Not that any of y'all do that, but <laughs> I have talked to people who believed that where they parked their car made a difference. Ridiculous. Um, there's also some natural mechanisms that can give us some ideas about the future. These are things like understanding human nature and behavior. When you understand human nature, 
you can predict, in a lot of cases, what humans are going to do. You have things like statistics. You have even just the innate ability to recognize good ideas, maybe good ideas from a business perspective or whatever. Um, it could be having good business sense. You know what's going to work well in a given market or a given situation, and you're able to act on that. Other things are knowing and understanding the reality of consequences, having wisdom, which is really about knowing what to do in a particular situation to produce a desired outcome. We can learn from experience. Experience teaches us about things about the future. We can learn and know history. We, we've heard repeated many times that those who don't know history are doomed to repeat it. We can look at social and cultural trends and, and get an idea of what's going to happen. There's things that have happened recently in our country uh, that uh, are appalling, they're terrible, but are we really surprised? Not really, we've seen it coming. We can see those things. There's other things like machine learning predictive models and AI and so on. There's investment trading chart analytics and there's many other things that we could add to the list that actually may have some value about understanding and predicting the future. But the reality is that they just deal in probabilities and not in certainty. And then of course, finally, there is the Bible in which God has revealed the future. And this is the only knowledge of the future that is absolutely sure and certain. And of course, the Lord hasn't revealed everything to us, but he's revealed the high points. And those are things that are important to understand and to know. And in the passage that we come to this morning, Peter is encouraging his readers to develop a thorough understanding of the, of, the, of the future and to act on that knowledge appropriately. I pulled out a phrase from verse 11 as the title of today's lesson. What sort of people ought you to be? When we properly understand the future as it's revealed in the scriptures, it should absolutely change us today should change the decisions that we're making today. It should impact our desires, our priorities, our values, our pursuits. I mentioned our decisions and our actions. Knowing the future, knowing what God has ordained, should absolutely be a part of our everyday today. Well, today marks the culmination of our study over the past year in the memoirs of Peter. As you know, we worked our way through the book of Mark and then on to 1 Peter, and then over the past few weeks we've been looking at 2 Peter, and we'll be concluding that study today. Now, it's somewhat bittersweet to think about this as our final lesson in these. I've thoroughly enjoyed it and been encouraged and challenged by by this study in so many ways. Um, but next week, we will get to go back to the Old Testament and study the divided kingdom. And so I mentioned earlier that those who don't know history are doomed to repeat it. Well, as Paul references, the stories of the Old Testament have been written for our benefit, and there's much to learn. So I'm excited to delve into that, and hopefully you will be too. But 
thinking through our passage today and the conclusion of our study here, um, I just wanted to start with giving you a reminder of the broad outline of the book. And so this is taken, I, I showed this to you a few weeks ago when we went through the introduction to the book, and Vikram also went through it last week, but I think it's helpful to understand. Um, and these are out of order. Um, but the first one there is know your salvation. We covered that. Um, this is where Peter makes the statement that through the true knowledge of Christ as revealed in the scripture, we have everything we need for life and godliness. And the key doctrine that he's highlighting there is the sufficiency of the scripture and what God has accomplished for us in salvation, not only for the eternal life, but life now. The next section is know your scriptures, and the focus on that section was really about the absolute reliability and authority of the scripture. The third section there is it's called know your adversaries, and it's really dealing with false teachers. Peter spends that whole chapter, chapter 2, talking about false teachers, and that's even going to spill over to some extent into chapter 3 today. And so there he's dealing with those false teachers and dealing with how to respond to those who seek to dissuade people from the authority, sufficiency, completeness, and reliability of the scriptures. And then finally, what we'll look at today is know your prophecy. In this final section, Peter provides a strong reminder to trust what the scriptures have to say about the future and then to act and live accordingly. So with that, let's go ahead and dive into the passage. Um, by the way, one of the things that I men I'll mention just before we get there is it's, it is a challenge sometimes to come up and teach, and I, I know the other teachers feel this, um, because a lot of cases we're covering large passages. And we don't get to do what Tom does and cover a half a verse at a time. Um, so we're covering large passages, but really our hope and our prayer, there is value to both. Um, and our hope and our prayer through this is that we're giving you some things that you can learn that can hopefully be useful in your own study. So I would just encourage you, um, as we've talked here about Second Peter, think through this outline. Go back and look at the book and look at, as we talked about a few weeks ago, the themes and such that are in the book of Second Peter. For me, whenever I understand those things, it makes the book, so, so to speak, spring off the page. And I understand it so much better. So that's our hope and prayer through this. So we're going to be moving kind of fast. There's 18 verses that we have to cover today. Um, but again, our hope is that these are some pegs that you can hang your hat on, so to speak, uh, that can help you as you study personally, which I would challenge you to do. All right. Well, let's jump into the passage today. And the first thing that we're going to look at is here in the first couple of verses. And in these couple of verses, Peter is going to give us his purpose for writing this book. And in that, he's going to tell us about a crucial reminder, something that we need to be reminded about. So there, if you look at 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, Peter writes, This is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you in which I am stirring you up, uh, stirring 
up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord our Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. So what we see here in, in this couple of verses is, first off, Paul's overall purpose, I'm sorry, Peter's overall purpose for the book. So he, as he outlines here, his primary goal for writing this second letter. And that goal, as we can see clearly, is to remind his readers of something. Now, what's interesting is he references this concept of reminding them back in chapter 1. If we go back and look at chapter 1, verse 12, he writes, Therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have been established in the truth which is present in you. I consider it right, as long as I am in this earthly dwelling, to stir you up by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus Christ is made clear to me. And I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure, you will be able to call these things to mind. So clearly, as you see there in that passage, Paul, Peter, mentions that concept of reminding a few different times and in a few different ways. And uh, Peter, as, he, as you look at all of this throughout the book, it seems like Peter understands that this commitment to reminding people about these critical things is, in a way, part of his responsibility as an apostle. So there in verse 14, uh, I'm sorry, verse 15, where he says, and I will be diligent that at any time after my departure you'll be able to call these things to mind. I think he's basically saying that he's going to work hard to write these things down so that even after he's gone they will continue to be avail available. And then it's interesting because right after that section he goes on to address the concept of the inspiration of scripture. So it's almost like Peter is saying throughout the whole book, these are some things that I need as Christ's apostle for you to understand. It's part of my responsibility to remind you of all of these things. So what is that reminder? Um, and I mentioned this a few weeks ago when we went through the book introduction that I don't think that this is just a simple little reminder like don't forget to pick up the milk on the way home or don't forget that we have choir practice tonight or whatever. Peter's writing this shortly before his death and I think he understood that this was his final letter. So this should be viewed similar to how we look at 2 Timothy out of Paul's writings, um, which were Paul's last words to his beloved child in the faith. And so I think this is Peter's last words to his beloved brothers and sisters in the church that Jesus called him to serve. So what then is he charging them to remember? And I mentioned this back in the beginning, but I think if, if we look at the book as a whole, and as well as what he's saying right here, I believe that Peter is calling on all true believers to remain committed to learn, trust, and obey the inspired, authoritative, inerrant, sufficient, complete, and clear Word of God. Now, there's a lot of words there, um, but it's interesting. All of those words there, talking about the Scriptures, 
are different doctrines that we hold to, and every one of them can actually be seen in this book. Taught um, some implicitly, but several of them explicitly. So that's what Peter's ultimate goal is. So let's look at his specific command from this passage, uh, verse 2, the specific command to remember. Now, clearly, when we look at that, uh, the command is to remember the scriptures. So what does Peter mean by this command to remember? And I don't think it's just a command to recall it to mind, although, of course, that's included. Um, but it's, he's not calling them to remember some content like a fiction novel that maybe, they, maybe we could read. Um, I think there's more that's implied here. It implies remembering and observing. If we go back to Proverbs chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, Solomon is instructing his child, and he says, My son, do not forget my teaching. Or we could change that to say, Remember my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. So notice that keeping the teaching of his father, of Solomon, is connected with remembering what he said. And I think the idea is similar. P Solomon was pleading with his son to remember what be he had been taught. But the point is that Solomon didn't expect his son to merely remember so he could regurgitate some facts. The point is he wanted to remember and abide by the teaching that he knew. And I think Peter's words here are the same. To remember the word of God is to put it into action. It's not passive, it's active. And so this concept is used even around the term remember several times in the Old Testament. Uh, one of them is in Psalm chapter 78, verse 7, uh, which I realize I'm pulling out of context a little bit, but Verse 7 says, and don't forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. So forgetting the works of God is actually equated with disobedience to his commands. And how do you understand the works of God? It's through understanding what God has revealed in the scriptures. And so the issue with the Israelites is not that they didn't know God's law, the issue was that they knew it and deliberately chose not to observe it. They chose to ignore it. So Peter, in calling the church to remember the scripture, has also been calling them to know it, to trust it, and to live in obedience to it. We see as well here uh, that Peter outlines two sources for God's holy word. The first one is the Old Testament, where he says there in verse 2, the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets. And so this is a clear reference to the Old Testament. The principal means by which God spoke in the Old Testament was through the prophets. And he did that in several ways. But all of it was written down by an authenticated prophet. Vikram referenced last week the tests from the Old Testament that God had ordained to evaluate whether or not a prophet was genuine or false. And those tests are in Deuteronomy chapter 13 and chapter 18. But Peter's 
point here, these, the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets, is similar to what we see in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, which says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways. Again, a reference to the Old Testament and the process of the inspiration of Scripture. Peter has addressed the inspiration of Scripture back in chapter 1 that we went through. There's also the New Testament that's referenced, where it says, and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. So similar to the Old Testament, Jesus, as the word of God, as the ultimate self-revelation of God, so to speak, <clears throat> he spoke and then he pre-authenticated the apostles as being the men who would write down his words and commands. We can see this in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. I already read the first verse, but God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son. So the writer of Hebrews is making really the same point that God's word previously was authored by the prophets and now God speaks in and through the person of his son as recorded for us by the apostles. And so note here as well that Peter gives equal weight to both of these. Both the Old and the New Testament should be considered as the same authoritative word of God. Now, note also what's not there. There's not new revelation. There's not a word from the Lord. There's not a still small voice. There's not dreams, superstitions, or any other sources that people can come up with for revelation. By the way, God in the Old Testament addresses the issue of the people of Israel wanting to find other sources for revelation. So Isaiah chapter 8 verses 19 and 20 says this, When they say to you, consult the mediums and the spiritists who whisper and mutter, and that's the idea of going to uh, those occult-type practices uh, with people who supposedly commune with the dead or whatever, um, says, when they tell you to go do that, when they say to you, consult the mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people consult their God? Should they consult the dead on behalf of the living to the law and to the testimony? In other words, the Old Testament is the standard to the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. The sun will not rise upon those who reject what God has provided in his word. So tying all this together, I, I think it just comes back to this key theme that I outlined in the beginning, that Peter's calling true believers to remain committed to learn, trust, and obey the Word of God and all that it has to offer for us. So let's continue moving in the passage. So in this next se section, Peter issues a warning about those who deliberately forget or ignore the Scriptures. So last week, 
we saw that Vikram walked us through chapter 2, which dealt with that issue of false teachers who deny and distort the scriptures. And here in this section, Peter's going to specifically address those who deny specifically the second coming of Christ. For as believers, for us as believers, this is a foundational belief. We are looking forward to that future hope. And sadly, there are those who want to deny that hope and in so doing undermine the faith of those who believe. So let's take a look at that. Um, So here in this next section, verses 3 to 5, we'll see a prominent danger, those who deny the second coming. So if we look... um, there at the verse we're going to look at a number of different things connected with this and we're going to first look at their reality the reality of uh, these this danger so after encouraging his readers to remember the scriptures peter makes a statement in verse three where he says know this first of all that in these last in the last days mockers will come with their mocking Now, that phrase, first of all, isn't a reference to chronological order, but it's an expression of priority. So this was a key issue, something that they needed to pay attention to. He wants his readers to know and be prepared for this reality that mockers will come. So when are they going to come? According to this passage, there's that phrase, in the last days. Now, I don't have time to get into all of the arguments here, but there's basically two primary views on what it means by the last days. One view uh, would be that this is referring to the time immediately preceding the second coming of Christ uh, or immediately preceding the tribulation period. Uh, There's a couple of challenges with this, one of which this false view that Peter's talking about, about the denial of the second coming, dates all the way back to the early church. And it's been a prominent problem in the church all along. Also, this concept of the last days is used in other passages. And in in those passages as well, it's typically best to understand it as referring to what we would call the church age. So we are now in the last days and have been for nearly 2,000 years. And that makes sense because this is, the, uh, this is the time period that immediately precedes the events of the end times. So the next things that are on God's timetable, which would include the rapture and the tribulation and uh, the millennial kingdom and the judgment and so on, um, those things are on the next timetable. We are now in the last days immediately preceding those. So this is talking really, I think, about the church age. Now notice as well in this first part of the verse, it says they will come. This is a certain thing, and the reality is you don't have to go far to find it. It's all around us. So what's their activity? Their activity, as we see here in the verse, is mocking, or some translations uh, translated as scoffing. So there the verse, know this first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking. And so the idea is to make something to be out to be ridiculous or to ridicule it. Uh, this 
idea of scoffing is even a concept that's prominent in Proverbs. Um, but scoffers in Proverbs are labeled as fools. These are those who openly deny the teaching of Scripture, and they typically do so in a demeaning and blasphemous manner. So that's what we're talking about in this activity. So they're, they're coming out openly against the Scriptures, openly demeaning what it is that God has to say. Next, we can see what is their prominent characteristic. Again, if we go back to the verse 3, know this first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts. Now, this is interesting, I think. Um, what is a common characteristic of those who reject the truth and particularly about of false teachers? It's lust. Of course, this here is referring to all kinds of lusts. And so this would be cravings for all forms of pleasure, for power, money, material possessions. Um, and of course, what we all typically associate that term with would be any form of sexual sin, sexual lust. So the prominent pattern throughout history is that sexual sin often accompanies rebellion against the truth. Look at the nation of Israel. Look at our own nation. Look at every other nation under the face of the earth. This is a prominent problem. Last week, we covered in chapter 2 where Peter describes in detail the characteristics of false teachers. Well, one of them that we can see in verse 13, it says, They count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are stains and blemishes re reveling in their deceptions as they carouse with you. That word carouse has the idea of sexual sin. Verse 14 goes on to say, Having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed. That's the nature of false teachers. And, I mean, it's so true. If you look long enough and hard enough at false teachers, what seems to always come out? This issue. They are, in the end, controlled by their own lusts. That is the reality. The real issue with those who openly reject the truth of God is not a lack of evidence for the truth. The real issue is that it is a moral choice. Jesus made this abundantly clear in his discussion with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. So there in John chapter 3 verse 19, Jesus said, This is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men loved the darkness rather than the light. For their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for the fear that his deeds will be exposed. In other words, the reason that people reject God, that reject the truth, is because they love their sin. And that's what is true of those who are denying the second coming is that it's not really about the second coming. It's really all about their sin. They want to have license to continue to live how they want to live. So they are ultimately controlled by their own lusts. So here we also see their assertion, um, which 
is essentially are saying that there will be no second coming. So if we look at verse 4, verse 3, it says mockers will come with their mocking and so on, and saying, verse 4, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. So at the outset there, you see the denial of the second coming of Christ. These are people who say that Christ will not return. Now, there are different flavors of people who make this claim. Some are avowed atheists who embrace evolution or any form of anti-God ideology. But there's actually some that are in the quote-unquote church, although they cannot be saved. Those who deny the second coming cannot truly be believers. But there are many liberal theologians and liberal quote-unquote churches who deny the second coming as well. They are out there, and you don't have to look very far. Um, there are many, many seminaries in this country that purport to train men to be pastors that have people on their staff that deny the second coming. It's a sad reality. So next we can look at their self-defeating argument Basically, what they're suggesting here is that God hasn't ever intervened in history or in the world and all that, and it doesn't make any sense. Um, so there you see in uh, verse 4, these people are saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. And so this argument that they're making is what we would refer to as uniformitarianism. And this particular view is the common view among evolutionists and anti-supernaturalists and others who deny these things. And so the idea is that the universe is governed by a set of physical laws and that there has been no supernatural intervention by God or any other being. And in particular, they claim... God has never acted in judgment. Well, that's ridiculous. <laughs> and that's what Peter's going to point out with the next part of the verse. There's a massive logical flaw here. So if we look at verse 5, it says, for when they maintain this, this idea of a uniformitarian view, when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. So there is a phrase that's translated here, here as it escapes their notice. Um, now, I, I really like the New American Standard translation, but this is one where I really don't think this is the best translation. Uh, the ESV says they deliberately overlook this fact. And that's a much better translation. That's, that's more of the expression in the Greek. It's not that they just happened to, they, they didn't see it. They, they missed it. No, they saw it and they overlooked it. They deliberately and willfully looked the other way. In Greek, this is an active verb. It isn't, it isn't that they don't know the truth. The problem is they reject the truth. Like Paul states in Romans 1 that, People like this suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They openly deny the literal interpretation of the Genesis narrative. What's interesting is that 
Here, Peter absolutely affirms the literal interpretation of the Genesis narrative in three specific areas. It states, number one, that God acted to create the world and, and the universe through his word. He spoke and the universe leapt into being. He also talks about the fact that the earth was originally covered in water, just as Genesis 1 states. And then also he points out the fact that God has already acted in overwhelming judgment using water to destroy the earth in the flood. So clearly, looking at this, their, their argument is nonsensical. You can't have that position. And what's interesting is uh, many of these types of people is that they will claim to believe some things in the Bible, but then they go and reject this because it doesn't fit into their paradigm. Well, you can't do that. Um, and ultimately, if you're going to accept some parts of the scripture as literal and deny others, you've just undercut the whole thing. So clearly their argument is just a willing rejection of the clear teaching of scripture. So next we come to the biblical correction. There's two things that Peter points out here is number one, judgment is coming. But then he also deals with a second issue um, where he's pointing out that God has a purpose in delaying judgment. So first off, in verse 7, we'll see the judgment and the destruction of the ungodly is certainly coming. Verse 7 there says, But by his word, the present heavens and the earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Note this reference to God's word in the verse. That looks back or, or references back to verse 5, which says, By the word of God, the heavens existed. So the very same word of God which brought about creation is still the acting principle that keeps the universe from flying apart in a comprehensive cosmic nuclear detonation. Just as God's work, I'm sorry, God's word was at work in creation, it is at work today holding creation together. Colossians 1.17, which is speaking of Christ, says, He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Or Hebrews 1.3, and he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. So this verse makes known that there is a purpose in God's upholding creation through his word, and that purpose is for a future day of judgment. And that accompanying judgment is the reality of the destruction of the ungodly. Next, we'll see here that Peter wants us to understand God's gracious purpose in delaying judgment. So, number one, the fact that judgment is delayed, as we saw in verse 7, is absolutely because he's in control of this universe. But secondly, verse 8, do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. And the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, 
not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So there's some key lessons that we learn from this verse. So first off, don't willfully ignore this truth. Uh, If you see the phrase there in the beginning, do not let this one fact escape your notice. Well, that's actually a parallel back to verse 5, where it talks about those that it escapes their notice that God created the heavens and so on. So he's saying, don't do what those people do. Don't deliberately ignore the truth, the revealed truth of Scripture, but instead understand this, that with the Lord, uh, it's uh, one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. So we're called not to do that same thing. So secondly, we learn that God exists outside of time as we understand and experience it. It's what it means where one day is like a thousand years. The point here is that God, in some way that we can't comprehend or completely grasp, that he exists outside of what we know as time, somehow. He's also not bound by our timetables. Peter's point is that what may seem slow to us is irrelevant to God. In s- God is greater than we can possibly understand. We can't understand this, but there is a sense in which God sees all of time at the same time. So he sees all of history, saw from the beginning of creation to the end, just as it says in Isaiah that he has declared the end from the beginning. He sees all of that at a single moment in quote-unquote time, although, again, there's mystery there that we can't fully comprehend. So, by the way, there's a lot of people that look at this verse and want to make this into a formula for talking about how a day is a thousand years, and so one day of creation is, you know, that doesn't mean anything to God, and so on. No, absolutely not. When God said one day, he meant one day, one literal 24-hour day. There can really be no other explanation. If you think about it, if God wanted to communicate that there was one literal day on the first day of creation, how else was he going to do it than what he actually said? That there was evening and that there was morning the first day. What else was he supposed to say? Um, so people that take this verse and interject a lot of time back into creation, they're just doing what this passage is commanding us not to do. That can't be. So... Next we see, the next lesson here is that God delaying his judgment is an expression of his patience and grace. And this is a marvelous reality that teaches us something about our God. So while on the one hand, God is a God of wrath, he is angry over sin every day, as the Psalms tell us, and he will one day punish sinners, he is also a God of extraordinary patience. And aren't we thankful? I've often been amazed by this reality. But there's some other things that we can learn and see as well, and it's good to understand, is that God takes no pleasure in executing judgment upon sinners. 
We can see that in Ezekiel 33:11, where he says, Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. Why then will you die, O house of Israel? You can see what God desired in that verse was repentance. We also can see in this that God demonstrates extraordinary patience towards sinners. Genesis chapter 15 verse 16 says, this is God talking to Abraham about the nation of Israel and the fact that the nation of Israel is going to go into captivity in Egypt for some 400 years. And he says, then in the fourth generation, they will return here for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. Now that's an interesting concept, uh, but the reality is that God waited for that 400 years to bring Israel out of the land of Egypt specifically to, the, to allow the Amorites, who were the people that were in the land of Canaan, that would be driven out. It was specifically to allow them to have more time. Did God have to do that? Of course not. They were wicked. They were evil. Their sin was crying out against them, but God said, I'm going to give them more time. It's amazing illustrates that God is not like us because if it was me I would have just obliterated them right away if it was me I wouldn't be around <laughs> I'd already be obliterated another reality that we can see here is that God is eager to forgive all those who turn to him I love this is one of my favorite passages in the Old Testament Isaiah chapter 30 verses 18 where it says Therefore, the Lord longs to be gracious to you. And therefore, he waits on high to have compassion on you. For the Lord is a God of justice. How blessed are all those who long for him. That idea that God longs to be gracious to his people. And he just waits in a sense, hopeful, in a sense of hopefulness for them to come and to turn. So these are some marvelous things that we can see about our God. And so we can even look in at our own country and our, our world and wonder how the Lord can stand us anymore. The reality is that God is not done saving his people yet. He's given us more time. That's an astounding reality. But that time doesn't last forever. It will come to an end which is the next point here, that judgment will assuredly come upon the earth in a great cataclysmic fire. So verse 10 there says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burnt up. So Peter references at the outside of this verse this concept of the day of the Lord. And I wish we had time to dive into that because it's a very interesting study. Uh, but essentially, the day of the Lord is a reference to judgment. Now, and there's, there's kind of a parallel reality. There's on the one sense judgment over sin and against sinners, and then there's another sense of victory. It's the Lord's day. 
It's when he will be exalted. It's when every knee will bow and so on. Um, so there's sort of that dual sense, but in this context, it's talking about that aspect of his judgment. It, that judgment is not, this day of the Lord is not just one literal day. It's better to look at this as a time frame, uh, but it begins with the tribulation, and then there's a sense of growing anticipation through the tribulation and all that culminates in that ultimate second coming of Jesus in judgment and victory as there at the end of the tribulation that, that begins his millennial reign where he reigns on this earth for a thousand years. But then this day of the Lord reaches its complete fulfillment at the very end of the tribulation, I'm sorry, the millennial kingdom when the whole universe is going to be destroyed. And that's what this is talking about. So that whole period, in a sense, is a reference to the day of the Lord that has that ultimate culminating judgment. That's the ultimate end to this sin-soaked universe. It will be burned up, all of it. The heavens, stars, galaxies, everything will disintegrate into nothing. There's a verse in Psalm 46, uh, that's an interesting verse. Psalm 46 is one that you'll know. That's the one that has the be still and know. Uh, uh, but it's, that's a tumultuous psalm. And in one section, it says, The Lord raised his voice, the earth melted. There's a day coming when the Lord is going to raise his voice and the earth will melt. It's interesting here, Peter says the elements will be destroyed. And that word refers to the basic rudimentary particles, basic things. Now, I don't think that Peter had an understanding of molecular physics, but it's interesting that he puts it this way. There's nothing going to be left. Down to the smallest particle, the whole universe will rip apart at an elemental level and be completely destroyed. This is the truth that God wants us to grasp. Everything that you own, everything that you have, will one day be burned up. This will be God's final judgment before he ushers in the new heavens and the new earth. So looking at all of that, the question is, what do we do? How should we respond? And I think that's the main point of the next section, so if we look from verses 11 and following, we start with this key question. What sort of people ought you to be? Now that you know this reality, now that you know that it's all going to burn, what should you be like? So verse 11 says, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Looking for and hastening the coming day of God the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So what sort of people ought we to be? Well, as he outlines it here, first, a holy people. The reality of the coming judgment should motivate true believers to live differently. Eschatology and ethics go hand in hand. 
What we believe about the future impacts what we do today. Peter here uses two word groups, holy conduct and then godliness. And I don't think those need much explanation here. Uh, the point is that this world is not our home. <coughs> God is a holy judge, and he does not look on sin lightly, and we should make every effort to be separate from those things that he is going to eventually judge. This whole vast, incomprehensible universe is going to burn over sin. God takes sin seriously. This is the perspective that our Father and Creator has. and He has called you into a relationship with Him to walk before Him in a manner that is befitting a citizen of His future universe. So we are called to be a holy people. We're also called to be a hopeful people. There we see that in verse 12. And I think Peter's point is that a true believer is one that will not be satisfied just with the stuff of this life. That idea there of hastening the coming day of God has to do with eager anticipation. So instead of being bound to this life, we are to eagerly anticipate that wonderful day when sin will be banished from God's new universe and we will dwell in perfection with him. I think this is, in a sense, the idea that Jesus meant in the Lord's Prayer when he said, your kingdom come. We ought to be looking forward to that great day. And we all know that it can become too easy to become too connected with and too comfortable with the stuff of this life. Of course, God intends for aspects of this life to be enjoyed, but we are looking for something more. Those things that we enjoy now are but a measly little tiny thing compared to the glories that await us in the future. So we're called to be a holy people, a hopeful people, and then I think an eternally minded people. There, verse 13 talks about, says, but according to his promise, we are looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So the previous two verses focus more on the coming day of judgment and our ultimate salvation. This verse hones in on the wondrous truth of that new heaven and new earth in which righteousness will be at home. It's clear that on this earth, righteousness is certainly not at home. Not so for that internal state. We will dwell in righteousness with our Lord. The next, uh, there's an encouragement here in verses 14 through 16 that I think that Peter's calling us to diligently pursue these things. It says, therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our brother, beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking of them in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. So there, there's a few things in the passage today that we've been studying that hearken back to the beginning of the letter. In this case, if you remember back to chapter 1, verse 5, we're instructed to diligently supply moral excellence, knowledge, self-control, and so on. And so Peter comes back to that concept of being diligent 
to do what we're called to do. And he essentially restates a couple things that he's already just presented in the previous verses. And so he adds here to be found by Christ in peace when he comes. And that concept of being found by him in peace, I can't help but think of Romans chapter 12, verse 18, where it says, If possible, so long as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. So this is talking about pursuing peace in our interpersonal relationships. And then in verse 15 here, he again talks about that concept of the patience of God withholding judgment. So Peter's restating these things, living in holiness, pursuing peace, understanding uh, the, the reality of God's delaying in judgment is an expression of his grace. What he's, the exhortation here in all of these things is to be diligent about understanding it and applying the things that we need to do. So these are things that we can't just sit back on our haunches and do nothing. He wants us to be actively engaged. So verses 15 and 16, Paul makes a reference here to the things that Paul wrote about in his letters. And the point here is that it isn't just Peter that's saying these things. What he is saying is in lockstep with what Paul and even the other New Testament apostolic writers wrote. By the way, just a side note here, I wish I could spend more time on this, on this, but Peter here equates Paul's writings with the rest of the scripture. We saw this earlier, but basically Peter's perspective of all the New Testament writings is that they carried the full weight and authority and inspiration just like the Old Testament. And then here he affirms that Paul's writings have equal weight with all of the scriptures. So again, just a confirmation that what Paul wrote is absolutely authoritative. So as we conclude here, there's these final exhortations in verses 17 through 18, where he says, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard, so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men, and fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And to him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. So Peter's final words here include an exhortation to be alert and to be aware of the danger of false teaching and false teachers. And then Peter ends the book, interestingly, where he started, with, started it, with an encouragement to be committed to growing in the grace and knowledge of Christ, which is accomplished through a growing understanding of the scriptures. As we discussed in the beginning of the book, God's divine power has granted to us everything that we need for life and to pursue godliness through the true knowledge of God and Christ. And so his final call here is to continue in that effort. Don't stop. Continue to grow in your knowledge of Christ and all, all that he has accomplished for you and all that he is. Well, that's it. Um, that is our study in the memoirs of Peter. And certainly my prayer that the Lord would richly bless his scriptures in your life and challenge you in many ways. And I would just encourage you as well to go back and relook through those things. Remember the things that 
Peter is trying to teach us uh, through, through all of this. And uh, certainly we know that when we are doing those things, that God will work through them to bring about our growth. So let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we are so grateful once again for just the opportunity to sit before your word, to learn from it. And Lord, while this passage here today is sobering and in a sense scary and, and it's appropriate that we develop a keen understanding of what you have in store for this universe. And Lord, we pray as well that as we develop that right biblical perspective that you would use it as fuel to cause us to desire to walk holy, to worship, to walk in worship to you constantly, to seek to proclaim your truth to those that don't know, to pray avidly for the salvation of others and for the growth of our fellow brothers and sisters. Lord, we just thank you for these books that we've had the opportunity to go through over the course of this last year, for the ways that you've challenged us through it. We pray that the same for this next study that we're about to embark on, that you would use your Old Testament to great effect. There are many lessons that we need to learn and to be challenged by. And so, Lord, we ultimately just thank you for your word. Thank you that through your word that we can come to develop a right and thorough and accurate knowledge and picture of you as you have revealed yourself and revealed your son. We pray that you would help us to grow in those endeavors. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.